Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a quick few updates here from the podcast studio. 2022 was a record year, and we want to thank everyone who made it so special from our participants, our sponsors, and of course, our runners and our alumni who helped us make 2022 a record year. Right now, we are actually full with most of our spring races other than the Grandma's Marathon in June and the Lincoln Marathon in May. We also have the Chicago Half Marathon in May. Um that we are currently recruiting for, as well as many of our fall races, believe it or not. It's crazy. We're in January here, or excuse me, we're in February, <laughs> um, and we're already recruiting for races in October, September, and November. So make sure to follow us on social media and check out our website for all those great races. We also locally here in Connecticut have our golf outing coming up on June 5th. If you're a golfer, come golf with us, and we also have some wonderful sponsorship opportunities opportunities still available. We also have our virtual Purple Patties virtual event coming up in March. To learn more about all these great things, as I said, make sure to visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us on social media, wherever you're on social media to stay updated. We're everywhere. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us all the way from Memphis, Tennessee, pancreatic cancer survivor, Angela Baines. Angela, thank you for joining me here on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited because A, you're a survivor. B, we had to reschedule this, which I'm all, I always get full disclosure. I always say full disclosure, but I, I get a little nervous sometimes because I know like stuff comes up, whether it's treatment or anything, but you rescheduled right away, which is awesome. I got you back into the, we got you back into the calendar because uh, I was looking forward to having you on the podcast the other day. So everything worked out, which is awesome. Um, and as I said, you're, you're a pancreatic cancer survivor and I, and you and I were talking before we hit record here and, and really the one thing about this podcast, we're going on our sixth year here um, when we started it, it was about awareness, about bringing inspiring stories. And I think there's nothing else more inspiring than bringing survivors on our podcast. So whenever we bring survivors on, I just know how special that is um, for myself, for us here at Project Purple, but also for the community. So really excited to have you on. So thank you for taking the time. Um, as I mentioned before we were talking, you know, the first segment of the podcast is always our guest opportunity to kind of share with our community their background, um, you know, a little bit about their journey with pancreatic cancer. And with that, Angela, the microphone is yours. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, like you said, I am from Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up here. Um, uh, just a, a granny's girl. Uh, <laughs> hung around the older generation all the time, sat at their feet and listened to their stories. And um, I'm the oldest grandchild in our family. Um, so um, I kind of grew up with my aunts and uncles. Um as far as my background, uh, I graduated from college here uh, at Lamorne on College, a historical black college here in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, it's actually my family's alma mater. Um, I currently work for Pfizer Pharmaceutical. I've been there. This is going on my 20th year. I'm so <laughs> elated about that. I love my job. 
And my husband and I own a metalworks company here in Memphis, and uh, we've been in business for 10 years now. And um, it's really going well. Our son works with us, so it's steadily growing. Uh, and hopefully my grandsons will take it over someday. Um, as far as um, my background in in health, I guess I'll say, I was always athletic in high school, junior high school. I ran track, played uh, in the band, the flute, um, sang in the choir, still sing in the choir today. Um, so I always tried to make, you know, uh, good choices in life. Uh, you know, I like to travel. I love to read. Um, I love interacting with people um, and try to set a good example, you know, with those that I come in contact with, you know, and share positive information if I can. It's just something that I love to do. Leave people, I guess, with, in a better state than when I met them. <laughs> um, so when I was diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer, it was really shocking to me because I felt I'd done, you know, all of the right things in life. You know, I stayed physically active. You know, I ran, I uh, ate the right things. So I thought, and um, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, you know, I, I didn't stay all up all times of the night. You know, I just thought I was on the right track to, you know, maintaining a healthy life. But uh, little did I know um, you can't prevent yourself from getting um, a disease or cancer like, you know, pancreatic cancer. Uh, it's just something that can happen. And the type of um, tumor that I had was a solid mass. And I'm so grateful that it was a solid mass. Um, it hadn't spread anywhere. And uh, it was caught in the first stage low grade. And that doesn't happen. That, that's so rare to happen for people. Um, so I feel very, very blessed to be here. Uh, and it's like um, my whole team, my doctors, um, you know, my, my family physician, uh, my, my GI doctor, my surgeon, it's like they all lined right up together. They were all believers and they gave me such hope, you know, when they started to discuss with me my options of dealing with it. Um, I was so happy to uh, find that I, I didn't need to have uh, chemo. So I'm so glad I, I was, you know, uh, I didn't have to go that route, but uh, I did have to have a Whipple procedure done. And uh, that was a tough surgery. That was a tough surgery, even for someone like myself who uh, had been healthy, didn't really, never even got a cold, you know, I just, the only time I ever went to the hospital was when I had my children, my babies, 30. So, you know, I thought, you know, I was really, really in good shape. Um, but it was still a, a tough surgery to get through. Um, matter of fact, I had complications after my surgery. But I'm so grateful that they were able to uh, get everything resolved and, and restore me back to good health. So... I want to back up. When you were diagnosed, what year was that? Um, I was diagnosed in 2020. Wow. So where and when in 2020? Um, I'll tell you the story. I went to the hospital in January of 2020. 
And uh, no, I take that back. December of 2019, I went to the hospital. So right before Um, COVID. So this is like pre-COVID, life's normal. I think at that point, we kind of heard about it in Italy, maybe. Just getting ready to hit the scene. (laughs) And so um, I was in the hospital. um, Well, went to the emergency room because I'd had a, a terrible, you know, pain in my side. And I, you know, just didn't know it was kind of persistent and I just didn't know what was going on with it. And I've had a blood clot before. And so with me being a person that has had a blood clot, I didn't want to take any chances. So I went to the hospital and I wanted them to do, um, you know, a Doppler vein test or something, just, you know, see what's going on here. You know, it feels really, really weird. And so they ran all the tests end up doing a CT scan. And once they got the reading back from the CT scan while I was there in the emergency room, no one ever said that they saw a mask. All they told me was to follow up with my physician, my my regular physician. And I follow instructions, you know. uh, So I immediately made an appointment with my doctor the next day to see him in two weeks went to that appointment and my physician, I've had him for 20 years, the same physician. And so he's always very straightforward with me. Um, and he told me, he said, you know, they found a mass. He said, but what I'd like to do is monitor it for six months. And um, that was shocking to me because when you say mass, um, I'm like, okay, so what is it? Where is it? And he was telling me that it was in my pancreas. That it was at the um, head of the pancreas and he pulled out a chart so I could, uh, so he could illustrate uh, to me what he meant by the head of the pancreas and, you know, where the mass was. And he did explain to me that in monitoring it, he wanted to see if the, there would be any changes to it. Uh, to the size of it. He explained the size of it currently and, you know, that we would monitor. So I left the doctor's office that day and I really didn't think anything of it. Matter of fact, looking back, when he said mass, it never registered to me cancer. Never. Mm. Me, because I was, you know, in my mind, I'm, I'm perfectly healthy. So when he said that, I was like, okay, so six months rolls by, I come back for my visit. And of course, we do another CT scan. And he gets the readings back and he tells me, well, it's grown. And um, we'd like to do a biopsy now. So it's still not registering to me the possibility of cancer. I was like, oh, okay. You know, because I know I trust him so much. I know he's going to take care of me. So whatever he's saying, sure. Got a schedule for the biopsy. Went in for that. And the GI doctor didn't call me back or anything to tell me. uh, Because normally I I have this online um, chart where I can see. chart. Yes. So normally, whenever I take any type of test, I can go there and I can see my, you know, yep. test. 
but he didn't place them out there. But my doctor's office called me. And he told me that he was going to make another appointment to talk to me directly about the findings. And I didn't get nervous right then. But what caused me to get nervous was the fact that he called his office called me on a Thursday to tell me that we needed to talk face to face. On that Friday, I get a call from a surgeon's office scheduling me for surgery and I haven't had a discussion yet. Yeah. Oh my God. That was on a Friday. So I was on pins and needles all weekend. Like what in the world, right? <laughs> no one's told me anything about a surgery, but I've got a surgery uh, consultation, you know, scheduled already with what's really going on. So I went through the weekend wondering what, you know, was really going on. Monday comes and um, I get into my doctor's office and he tells me that tumor. It's solid. He tells me the size of it. However, he says with the rate of growth that it would be best to go ahead and take it out now. Angela, you, you froze there for a second. So what kind of tumor was it? Neuroendocrine. Yeah, that's what I thought you said. Okay. So it was an, (laughs) so at that point, then they discovered that it was a neuroendocrine tumor. Um, but they want to take it out. Correct. Because of where it was in the pancreas um, and the speed and the the rate of growth of it, um, it would soon block the duct for the um, enzyme secretion. Correct. So um, I did tell him that I wanted to think about it Mm -hmm. because I needed to process it. You know, someone who always thought of themselves as being healthy, you know, how could this be, you know, and an immediate decision for surgery, you know. Um, So I took the information and I I thought about it. um, And I scheduled an appointment with my GI doctor, the the doctor that actually did the uh, biopsy, because I needed them to explain to me. I wanted to make an educated decision for myself, you know, um, whether I felt that this was really necessary. Um, because like I said, I've never been cut on or any, I hadn't had any surgeries. I've really been healthy. So I thought, you know, so I went into the office, I, I talked to him and he explained to me, you know, um, the consequences of not removing it and thought that I should have a, discussion with the surgeon. He did apologize for scheduling the surgery consultation, you know, before anybody talked to me about what what was going on with me. So he did kind of uh, quote that anxiety. Um, So the doctor that he had scheduled the surgery consultation with was Dr. Bierman. Well, while I was waiting to get to, to go, um, for the consultation, I was thinking, I was talking to some people, you know, I'm like, well, maybe I should just go and get a a, a second opinion somewhere. You know, I was thinking about going to Vanderbilt or somewhere, you know, where should I go? 
And I don't know, something just told me to look up Dr. Bierman. And I looked him up. And once I read his background, I knew that I was in good hands with Dr. Bierman. It was just like, it was a relief because I knew that he knew what he was doing. And so when I met him, when I went in to meet him, he greeted me with a really, really intense and long hug. And it was very sincere. Um, My mom went with me that day and my husband went with me. And um, he explained a little bit to me about the type of cancer I had. And um, he did pull out his chart. He gave me all of the pros and cons of doing the Whipple procedure. Um, He gave me all of the percentages regarding complications and fatality. Uh, So he, he was very straightforward with me. He answered all of my questions. And I just felt really, really comfortable with him. And I left there <clears throat> with, um, with, with having to make the decision of the next steps, whether we were going to go ahead with the WIP procedure. Um, in that meeting with Dr. Beerman, though, I have to say, he was the first one that ever said the C word to me. Not anyone in the emergency room at the hospital, not my family physician, not my GI doctor. He was the first and only one to actually say cancer to me. And I'm going to tell you, it it really um, spun me for a loop because it's like as soon as I got home, I went into my room and I looked in the mirror at myself because I'm looking for the illness. How could I have not known? I'm looking in my eyes to see, okay, or do I have any yellow in my eyes? I'm looking at my skin, you know, to see if there's something that would have told me. Looking at my nails and everything. But what I did see in a picture that I'd taken that day after he told me that I had cancer, I saw my frailty, if that makes sense. That is what I was able to see. I'd always been of the mindset, you know, I was just invincible. Every challenge that I ever encountered in life, I was able to step up to the plate, meet it, exceed that challenge and, and, you know, keep going, waiting for the next thing. But this one had me uncertain. And uh, it kind of shook me. It really did. Um, On my second visit to see Dr. Beerman, where we were getting ready to take some of the tests that I needed to take prior to um, the uh, surgery, we talked again. And he sat me down and he explained to me, he said, you know, I want to know what your belief is. What is your belief system? And we talked about my faith. 
And he told me, he said, do you trust that I'm able to do your surgery successfully? And I told him that I, 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 I did. I, I believe that he could do it from what I'd read about him. I believe that he was going to be able to handle my surgery successfully. So I trusted him. But I trusted God first and foremost. And then that's when he explained to me that he trusted God to guide him. And he said, if you don't believe that we're going to come through this successfully, I can't even take you as a client to do it. That was so reassuring to me that he had my interest at best, that I couldn't help but take him on as my surgeon. Does that, does that make sense? It's a uh, very profound what you've just said. And so it totally makes sense, Angela. Mm-hmm. And this is something, and I am so happy that this has all come out here mm-hmm. because this is what we tell patients all the time. If they do not believe in their oncologist, if they do not believe in their surgeon, then go find someone who you do believe in. Absolutely. Because it is so critical. And there's so many, there's so many, and, and kudos to Dr. Barriman and, you know, for being that type of person. So there's two things. I know you... I know you work in the in the pharma industry, so th- this isn't pharma. This is medical. What I'm going to say, Th- there are so many bad doctors and bad actors that I don't mind calling them out on the podcast and and telling patients like if you go to a doctor and he is a jerk to you, and you do not connect, I don't care if he's the, rated the number one surgeon in the world. Go no, go find number two and number three, or go find someone that you connect with, right? Because you're putting <laughs> your your faith, you're putting your life in someone else's hands. And I and I I cannot tell you how many times people say, "Well, that doctor has awful bedside manner," but I'm like, "What other but? Like, you're you, it's your life." That's right. That's right? right. Like, I don't get that. I do not get that. And I and I think part part of it is this is this is me, my opinion here, it's not Project Purple's, it's not anyone else's, is that I think people are scared. They're scared when they get diagnosed with the C word, right? Like it's it's a gut punch. You said something here. I wrote this down. Like you saw the frailty in yourself because of the word cancer, right? And and that frailty that's that's what people experience mentally and also physically but it's mental in the very beginning when they're given that diagnosis yeah. and so it's this whole rush of emotions and i think sometimes like they say never make decisions based on emotion and i think part of the system again this is dino varelli's theory on this mm-hmm. is that it's designed to do that the system's designed to have patients not make rational decisions. Now, do I think consciously, do I think it's happening like on purpose? No, but I think subconsciously here, it's by design that that the system has been developed that way. Because if everyone took back, if everyone took back, like I, I've seen it, I've seen practices where people get the diagnosis and then the next day they're doing chemo. Like that, that should be outlawed. Like no one should be for, and, and, and I'm not saying, and the reason why I'm saying it, it should be outlawed is because 
and I'm going off on a rant here on a tangent, Angela, but this is going to come back to like the belief in the doctor because no doctor, no clinician should be pushing people into treatment within 24 hours, you know, or pushing in. Everyone should have ample time to make educated decisions that are best for them. Absolutely. I agree. I agree with that. And so it's so it's such a relief, and I'm so glad that you bring this up about Dr. Berryman, that, that you have this connection spiritually, emotionally, physically, right? Because that's how it that this is what this is what every patient should go through. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee mm-hmm. if we get to that point in our medical system, the outcomes are gonna skyrocket in a positive way. Positive outcomes will skyrocket. So th- I, I, I just really appreciate you saying that because that is so powerful. And as I said before we hit record, you know, this is part of the power of this podcast is, you know, hearing patients and survivors talk about that connection. That's how everyone should experience that. Everyone should go into that surgical consult and eat. Like you said, it was the first time you heard the word cancer, which is gut-wrenching. I can't fathom. I've never been there in my life. I've heard that time and time again, you know, how, what that feeling is like, never had it happen to myself, mm-hmm. but to have a connection with a doctor though, that you know is going to do everything in his power to save your life when you hear the worst words of your life is, is just so powerful. It was, I can't even explain to you the feeling um, that I, that I had. <laughs> when when he spoke to me and he showed me how much he cared about his patients you know um matter of fact before i left his office that day he'd given me his card and on the back of his card he turned it over and he wrote um a former patient's name on it mrs wiggins and he wrote her phone number down he said all of my patients call her. He said, because she's an excellent guide about going through this type of cancer. He said, she has a success story, but it was not without obstacles. He said, but I think she would be of great help to you because I needed somebody. I've never known anybody that had pancreatic cancer. I don't even know, and I know my family's medical history, but I don't know anybody in my family that has had it. Mm. So I didn't have anybody, you know, to ask questions of or anything. Personally, I didn't even know anybody, even outside of my family, that had it other than, um, you know, um, entertainers that maybe they, you know, uh, after they they passed, you know, they would announce this is what they suffered from, um, but nobody, I didn't know anybody. So I did take him up on calling Miss Wiggins. And um, she was so, so, so sweet to me. Um, and we still keep in touch to this day. Um, but my question was, I, I wanted to know, okay, so with the surgery, you know, how long did it take you to recover? Did you have to have chemo? She did have to have chemo. Um, you know, about the weight loss. Did you ever pick your weight back up? You know, did you, uh, what happened with your skin? And I mean, she just answered all of my questions. Um, 
then I did get around to discussing my feelings about being diagnosed because I didn't think anybody would understand when I said I saw my frailty. You know, that's rare. People don't normally see that in themselves. And so I had a question of why, why did this happen when I was so good about trying to live a healthy life? She said, Angela, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't stay out all times of the night. She said, I'm very athletic. She said, I maintain my weight. She said, I ate the right things. I did good by people. She said, but she said, I come to, I had to come to grips that this illness was not about whether or not we maintained our health. It can happen to anybody. And she said, this is not about you directly. It's nothing that you did wrong. Because I'm trying to figure out, what, you know, how did this happen to me? What did I do? I mean, did I eat too much cheese? I mean, what? <laughs> I just yeah. did not, you know? And she said, this isn't about you. She said, this is just something that you're going to go through. So that on the other side, you'll be a testimony of the fact that you can recover and that you can live a life after overcoming pancreatic cancer. And when she told me that, um, that gave me such great encouragement. It wasn't the answer I was looking for, but it was the answer that I needed if that makes sense. You know, I, I was, I was really looking for her to tell me, Oh, so what did you eat? You know, what was your normal, you know, what did you, what's normally on your menu? You know, I thought she was going to tell me some specifics. Oh, that's what, that's what caused it. You know, but no, she gave me the answer that I needed so that I could move on and see this in a, from a different perspective, a positive perspective. And so um, I kept in contact with her and um, she put me in contact with others that um, were dealing with uh, pancreatic cancer or have survived pancreatic cancer. Um, And they have these monthly meetings and I would get on the calls um, and I still do um, not the calls, but we do a text um, weekly now just to keep in contact with one another and continue to encourage one another. Um, One thing that I've learned in having a cancer diagnosis is just like you said, you know, um, you must come to grips with the acceptance. If you do not come to grips with the acceptance on the front end, then you're already setting yourself up for failure. So accept the diagnosis, then come up with an educated course of treatment for yourself. Work with your team of physicians, but you are the one that's going to make that final decision, okay, this is the path that I'm going to take. And you have to be sure of the path that you're going to take 
because you're wanting to make sure that you keep the proper perspective of the outcome that you're expecting to achieve every step of the way. And um, with that type of mindset, I believe that's why I was able to come through as um, good as I did. I did have complications out, you know, after my Whipple procedure. Um, they discovered that some I had some leakage going on in my abdomen, so I ended up ulcers. having ulcers. They call them ulcers, what, or well, what happened? They didn't call them ulcers. They called well. What happened was um, I developed this really, really high fever. I mean, I was so sick, and. Um, I ended up going back in to the hospital and they found that there was bile leakage. So it was just, you know, bile floating mm-hmm. made me really, really sick. And they ended up inserting, I had four drainage tubes mm. that they insert. Um, and then they sent me back home with that. And so for, I want to say about three weeks, I was draining um, they were able to take two out and uh, then they continued to drain a little while longer after that. I had to go to see my oncologist um, and um, he gave me, I forgot the medicine that he gave me, but it was an antibiotic. Um, oh, it was so strong, but I needed that um, because I was taking the oral antibiotics mm-hmm. and slowing the process. But I ended up going to him and they did a um, IV run of the uh, antibiotics. I want to say it was fluconazole. I might be wrong on that. Floxacin or something, 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 something. But nevertheless, it was a very, very strong antibiotic, but it did work. It worked. I felt so much better, so much sooner. And um, I ended up coming home, keeping the tubes in two more weeks, the last two. So when I went in, uh, finally after that, that those uh, last two weeks to get the tubes out, they did the CT scan and they were able to tell me that I could get both of my tubes out. However, I had some soup and they told me I needed to go and see Dr. Bierman immediately. I thought they were just going to take the tubes out and now it's going to be about, you know, on my way. And um, went to Dr. Bierman's office and he tells me that they located a abdominal aneurysm. So I had to have an immediate surgery to have stents placed in through my groin area while I was woke (laughs) because I had something to eat, so I couldn't have any anesthesia or anything. So that was an experience. Um, But I came through that. I was okay after that. Um, Building up my strength after all of that was a bit challenging. Um, I didn't have any, um, my metabolism was zero. Um, I really didn't have an appetite. So my meals consisted of um, glucerna, yogurt, jello for a little while. Then I moved my way up to a little bit of eggs, scrambled eggs. Um, So it was a steady, you know, uh, but slow getting, you know, my up to uh, a good uh, appetite. Um, so now 
even when I'm saying my prayers, I thank God for an appetite because I know what it's like not to even have one. But I knew I had to eat so that I could heal and recover strength. And of course, you know, all of the walking that you have to do when you come through this type of surgery, I could do that. I would, I would walk up and down the street. Um, then I got to the point where I was able to go back to my walking trail and walk. Um, so I just kept, you know, taking progressive steps day by day to get myself better. During this time, I'd lost like um, in three months, I'd lost, I want to say about 55 pounds. Oh my God. So I was really, 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 really thin. Um, and I only took one picture of myself during that time because I didn't want to remember the way that I looked uh, when I was going through it. But uh, I've gained my weight. Um, probably have gained a little bit too much, but I do have a good appetite now. Um, I don't do processed uh, food, so I don't eat out as much as I used to. Um, if I do, I go to select places that um, have some things that I feel comfortable eating. But for the most part, I eat at home. I take my lunch, um, take my breakfast to work. Um, so I, I'm just really mindful about what I eat. One of the things, though, that's funny, um, popcorn. I love popcorn. And it's one of the things that I love to have with my grandchildren. When they come over to spend the weekend with me, we would watch movies and eat popcorn. They love that because I have a big popcorn bowl. Everybody has their own popcorn bowl. Well, I can't have popcorn anymore. And that's one of my favorites. And I love nuts. I can't have the nuts that I used to eat. Um, I, I would just like, you know, cashews and all those were just a snack for me, but I can't have those anymore. So I've had to adjust my appetite a little bit, but yeah, now I do a little applesauce and stuff like that, but it's still a snack. So I can't complain. I know that's one thing that, you know, so you go through this experience, right? You get the front end, get through the surgery. I mean, our medical system is really good at Whipples now, mm-hmm. but there's still a lot of complications. Anytime you try to rework all the duct work and everything in there, yeah. you just, there, there's going to be complications. And so, you know, whether it's an ulcer, a leak, you know, leaky gut, all these sorts of things that happen. Right. And, and then, so that's from a, from a pure medical standpoint. And we don't talk too much about the food staff because I, I think that's kind of overlooked a bit, right? So, you know, when you have this major surgery to a major organ, <laughs> um, everything changes, you oh, know, yeah. so your digestive system changes. So it's, I, I'm glad you brought that stuff up because, yeah, life changes a lot. Like, you know, for survivors, I think we we always... And yes, we are focused on the cancer, eliminating the cancer, right? And and that did happen. But then there's this challenge that by doing that, what you're left with, if that makes sense, right? Like oh. people, people are, it's not like as if, you know, and, and we have gone down this road a bit with survivors, um, but I, I, not to the degree, and, I, and I'm glad that you brought this stuff up, like, because- Everything changes. You're here, but 
hey, I love popcorn. I, I when you're saying doing the movies, my my older son, my youngest son, who's 17, he when when he watches movies with mom and dad, he makes the popcorn and he brings it over. So I love eating popcorn, watching movies, right? Or if we go to the movies. Yeah. You know, so I when you said, oh, I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I could do that. Like thinking about it in my own life, right? Like if I just eliminated popcorn now and, mm-hmm. you know, the routines of eating out, right? Like everyone likes to go out and, you know, go out with friends and family and, and get out of the house, right? And yeah. that's hard to do when, you're, mm-hmm. when your diet is so specialized, right? And, and I just remember... Remember my dad, but I remember a friend who was like a bodybuilder back in the day, and like he he would never go out with us because he couldn't eat what was available. You know, when you have dietary restrictions, like I have a good friend who has a really bad gluten. You know, he's celiacs, so you know we go out to dinner and he can't even eat anything. Like he's got to get like lettuce. You know, so it's just it's just you know. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Angela, because. Yes, we are we are trying to beat this cancer and try to cure people. But then there's this secondary, like, hey, you're here, but you're not back to where you were. You you're still dealing with all these new challenges. And that's gotta that's gotta be so such a challenge mentally and physically. Um, clearly from the physical aspect, as you said, you lost fifty-five pounds and then try to get back to where you were before from an activity and everything. Uh, but then just navigating that daily is not easy. No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, interesting you say about your friend who uh, with celiac. Uh, I have a good friend um, that deals with that as well. Um, but what I have started to encourage her to do, because I'm doing the same thing, even though I may not be able to go out and eat some of the things that's on the menu, um, I still try to get out in fellowship. I am a big, big believer in social interaction. We have to have that because I do suffer from seasonal depression. So just on top of having, like you said, the still lingering challenges in regards to um, having to kind of change your life around a little bit, um, especially um, surrounding uh, what, what I eat and how that had been a part of my social interaction with other people going out to eat and um, or going out uh, to someone's home or whatever and, you know, having a meal with friends. I'd still now go out, but I go out to fellowship. I'll eat at home and then maybe I'll just have, you know, something to drink or whatever. But as far as just going out and, and eating, you know, where everybody, whatever everybody else is eating, I'm sorry, I, um, they understand but I still want to go out in fellowship. And that's, a, that's, that's what we need to do. Um, even though <clears throat> we um, deal with the aftermath of having had uh, pancreatic cancer or we're going through fighting um, to survive pancreatic cancer, it's still uh, necessary for us to get out and, and be around people that we love and that we care for so that we can get that support. We need that. Don't go home and just, you know, be at home. I can't eat what everybody else is eating or I'm not feeling my best today. So I'm not going to go and damper anybody else's spirit. If you can get out, sometimes, you know, if it's not as extreme as far as you're saying you're not feeling as well, if you're not having to stand in the bathroom and hug the toilet and you're not, you don't have to lay down 
and you've got energy to get out, but maybe you're just not feeling your best. It might just be, you know, um, a psychological thing that if you do get out, you might start to feel better. And that's just something that I practice. Um, I'm always, always the optimist. (laughs) Yeah, but... what you just said is so powerful though, because there's always strength in numbers, right? And hopefully I, you know, you surround yourself with positive reinforcement, not negative. Right. But that was like the biggest thing during COVID, right. Is like, we couldn't socialize. Right. And, you know, social media skyrocketed and, you know, that's another podcast for another day on the, the perils and the depths of, you know, social media. Um, but you know, I, I, social interaction—that's that's what makes humans human beings, right? And and so it's just such a powerful thing that you just said, you know. And and that, I, I guess I go back and I want to again. I'm taking notes here, but I go back to something that you said, and the social interaction piece buys into what you said early on, and it's kind of like, so I, I I'm. I'm writing the script here, as they say, I guess, and I'm able to see things from this conversation, Angela, from a different perspective, because as I look at my notes and hear what you're saying, I'm listening, right? Mm -hmm. You said from the very beginning, with that first time, you saw the frailty of you in cancer. And you said it, and I, I wrote it, but then you said it, and I started here, was acceptance. and. I can tell you from having, I don't, I don't know how many survivors I had. There, there's, there's a lot of common things. Probably over a hundred people that have done really well. One of the the proper tenets is acceptance, and some people find acceptance in the beginning. Some people find it in the middle. Some people find it at the end. But when they find acceptance everything else just falls into place because the cancer doesn't define you. You look at it from a different perspective and you accept the circumstance. I know we mentioned this before, you you remove the emotion piece and it becomes a rational decision, right? So, you know, I think when what you said is so powerful about the social piece mm-hmm. and for some people listening would go, man, like, that sucks. I got to have dinner at home and then go meet my friends or family for just a drink. Like, no, I don't want to do that. But the acceptance of like, Hey, this is where I am. I know what's best for me, you know, for Mm -hmm. my body. I'm going to go do that like that. And I'm still going to have a good time and I'm going to still see my friends and we're going to still talk about everything. I'm going to talk about my grandkids and, you know, Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about vacations and work. Yeah. Who cares if I don't go out and have dinner? It's less expensive, right? Like, so there's that, but there's that acceptance, right? That acceptance happened early on. And I truly believe as a listener here, listening to your story, that was probably one of the big things that made a huge difference in this journey for you is that acceptance early on. Now, how you got there, I don't know if we ever know that, but I I can say, you know, that. And what I've listened to and the things that I've written down here is huge. Well, thank you. But I do want to add that I got there because of my faith. Um, When I was in the, because I definitely want to go back to where you were talking about uh, all of this 
unfolded for me during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So I could have visitors. When I had my surgery, I actually had my surgery on election day, 2021. And when I had my surgery, no one was there with me. My husband, the last time I saw him is when they rolled me in to have uh, my anesthesia hooked up. That was the last time I saw him. And um, so I was alone, but I wasn't alone because I had the Holy Spirit with me. And when I needed somebody to talk to, I was talking to the Holy Spirit, asking God to bring me through this. Heal me. Let me bring into remembrance the things that I needed to do to sustain myself. Father God, give me the energy and the wherewithal to get up out of this chair and go and walk. I don't want to sit here and just feel sorry for myself. Allow me to do the things that I need to do to help you to heal me. And I stayed in that type of mindset every day. I got up, the nurses would ask me, how are you doing this? How are you walking so many laps? I would be in the hallway early in the morning with my um, whole little um, that hook and the, the little, um, the thing that you hook the um, IVs on. I forget IV, what you the, the pole, like the IV yeah. pole. Yes. I just had that on my little slippers and my robe. And I was out there in the morning after I've had, you know, uh, my little water. And some juice. And I was out there because I was thinking about the things that I would normally do if I were at home. Had I not had the surgery, I would still be out walking before I go to work. So I'm trying to do everything that I would normally do that I am capable of doing to help me to get through this thing. Um, I anointed my own head with oil at night, just praying and asking God to heal me. Um, I couldn't lay down and sleep, you know, and sleep comfortably. So I would just leave my uh, bed lifted where my head was lifted up a little bit. And I would lay back and put the pillow across my stomach just to comfort myself. And I tell you, uh, when I close my eyes, I would say the 23rd Psalm. And it's like every night that the Lord would cradle me in his arms and he would rock me to sleep. And I've always had a good relationship with my Savior, but it's like during that time, I actually saw the miracle of the Holy Spirit working in my life. That was the only way that I could sleep at night as if I felt the presence of God lulling me to sleep every night. And even when I was able to come home and sleep in my own bed, um, I got in the habit of turning the ocean sounds on <clears throat> in, in my headphones so that I would have something to help me to go to sleep. But at the end of the day, he still wrapped me in his arms and he lulled me to sleep sick and all, but he comforted me. So I, it really um, resonated with me, the fact that the Holy Spirit is truly a comforter. 
And it made me believe even more so that God is real. So one of my questions was faith, which you just answered. Um, but one of the tenets that uh, I see, or one of the pillars, I would say, that every survivor that we've had brings this up. Faith, acceptance, support, and exercise. And not in any order, but you know, you just mentioned exercise. You've mentioned your family quite a bit. I put that under support. Acceptance, we already talked about, and you just hit faith. So, um, Angela, you, you to a T have gone through what I've seen hundreds of times, you know, with survivors. And, and I think, you know, my next, I've got like two questions left here for you, but I think you've kind of summed it up as like, what's your best advice or the advice you'd give someone who's currently battling? I think well, we just answered that to a T though, right? I mean, I don't know. What else would you add? One thing that I do add, uh, I would like to add to that, not only for people that are currently going through it, but I would like to add, and I've written this on uh, my social media pages, just encouraging people. If you have symptoms, of, you know, something extraordinary, extraordinary uh, occurring with your skin, a persistent pain, um, your eyes don't look as clear as they normally, you know, would look. And you know that you're not um, sick, physically sick, where you would know, okay, I have a cold or I've been around someone and maybe I've caught this, that or the other. But if there is some persistent symptom that you're experiencing, don't ignore it. Do not ignore your body. You cannot look in the mirror and diagnose yourself. Because as I said, I've been looking in the mirror all along. Tumor and all, but never knew I had one until I got a persistent pain in my side. Thankfully, I'm not the type of person that would ignore a symptom because there is a underlying condition that is causing that, you know, symptom to arise. So had I ignored it, where would I be? Had I ignored it, where would I be? I may not have been here today. So I do encourage people, if you have something going on with you physically, um, please do not ignore it. Go to the doctor, let them check you out. They're trained physicians and nurses to be able to um, run the tests necessary to determine if there's something that needs to be addressed. And you can't do that just looking at yourself. So many people make the mistake of, oh, well, I look fine or, you know, I sound fine. I feel happy. I feel good. I have to tell you one last story. I get my nails manicure, of course. Mm. I went to this salon, a new salon that recently opened in the area called Germantown here um, next to Memphis. And the, the little lady that was doing my pedicure was an Asian lady. And she uh, explained to me like the week before that she helped to cure an illness that her cousin was having 
who lived in, I want to say she said Korea, but she made him a tea of dandelion and he was able to be cured of whatever was ailing him. And it was something digestive to the point that Mm -hmm. he couldn't stand up. He couldn't even walk, but it cured him. So we talked about herbal, you know, uh, treatments and things like that. And I like that because my family is from South Carolina and they always, you know, created um, their own treatments for um, illnesses. Right. So I like that. We had something in common there to talk about. And. The next week when I saw her to get my pedicure, she looked at my foot and I knew I had a dark spot on my, on the side of my heel and it was very dry. And I was like, why do I have this one dry area on my foot and not on the other? The top of my foot is not dry. The bottom of my foot is not dry, but it's just this little area. And she said, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And after I'd had my whipple, after I'd come through all my complications and everything, I looked at my foot and I don't have that spot anymore. But she told me that I was sick, but that was before anybody ever told me I had a tumor. And after I'd gotten that tumor removed, I didn't have that spot on my foot anymore. So I was saying that to say this when I say, if your skin looks different, if your hair is coming out, if your eyes look different, if there is a persistent pain somewhere on your body, do not ignore yourself. Go to the doctor and have yourself looked at. And so that's my last point of encouragement. It's so powerful. And, and we are our biggest advocates. Right. If we don't advocate for ourselves, if you don't get the right answer, if you don't feel 100% sure or 120% sure that the answer that you're getting is the answer you're looking for, go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So powerful. Angela, my last question here, and there's no right or wrong. This is, uh, I always say, all my questions are loaded, but this is probably the most loaded one. Um, Given your experience, what you've gone through, everything that you've experienced, how does Angela define the term pancreatic cancer? It is a test. It's a test. And for me personally, it is a part of my testimony to not take anything, anyone, or any time for granted. That was one of the things that, I think that was a test to bring me to the, to the uh, perspective of not to take life for granted. It's a test. And for me, it has been a testimony. Powerful stuff. Angela, our last thing here, our audience listening at home, 
someone may be where, where you are, where, where you were, excuse me, in December of 2019 and would love to connect with you, or maybe just someone else who, who has gone down a similar road and, and would like to connect with you as well. Where's the best place for people to connect, maybe follow your journey as you continue to go through life uh, you know, with, with the challenges that you currently have because of pancreatic cancer? Um, I can be followed on Instagram. Um, they can find me at bold spirited one, or they can find me on Facebook under bold spirited one, or they can look up my name, Angela Baines, that's B-A-I-N-E-S. Or if anyone wants to contact me directly, they're more than welcome to send me an email. I'd love to connect. Um, that would be at A L Baines. That's B A I N E S nine one zero at gmail.com. Awesome. Angela, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. I just went out on Instagram and followed you. So I uh I, I love connecting. You know, this is um Something for me that's been really, really special um, is to be able to not only share these journeys here at the Project Purple Podcast, but get to know people. And um, you don't have to do this. You know, people can just go on their their lives and live their lives. And there's not there's no right or wrong here. Um, and I'm not trying to, you know, hate on anyone who doesn't share their journey with pancreatic cancer. I just know how special it is for people to open up their lives and open up their stories, their vulnerabilities and that that frailty, right? That frailty that you had in your life. That's that's, you know, it's an awful moment in time for you. Uh, but to be able to talk about that and share that in hopes of not only raising awareness for this thing called pancreatic cancer, but to help others is really, really a, is special. So uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, I just want to thank you for for allowing us the opportunity here at Project Purple to share your journey. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. My prayer is that they come out with better testing so that they can, you know, catch this stuff sooner rather than later, you know, so that we can save more lives. We're pushing. We're pushing. I promise. Thank you for listening to the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this episode. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on our YouTube channel. Feel free to share those videos. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Till next time, please be safe and thanks for listening. Thanks.